Hello and welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Today's episode is probably one of the most honest and raw conversations I've shared, and I'm grateful my guest was willing to take the time to sit down and share her story with me. Melissa Odin is my guest today. You may recognize the name as her story has been recently featured on Fox and Friends and several other media outlets. Melissa's story is that of a little girl who was supposed to die in an abortion, but instead grew up to become a woman who brings life and restoration to others. The chapters of her story are filled with unplanned and unexpected pages, but God's fingerprints of life, love, and forgiveness are throughout. As Melissa says, I don't believe God originally wrote abortion into my life, as God is the creator of life. But when it was introduced by man, or in my case a woman, he rewrote the story of my life around it to create the story of a life that is more intricate, more redemptive, more grace-filled than anything anyone else could have planned or written. Melissa, welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast, and thank you for joining me. I know that you've had um, kind of a whirlwind of a month, um, so again, yeah, I appreciate you being here and taking the time for this podcast. I'm grateful. So let's just go ahead and start off um, with, like I said, you've had a whirlwind of a month because you have been, um, your story has been able to um, be shared more this month because of the issues that are really coming to the forefront of things. So can you just kind of give us a brief intro to yourself um, and then we'll get into your story? Yeah, lots of times people recognize my name and can't quite put their finger on how they know me. And uh, it's because I tend to make the news, and uh, it's because I survived a failed abortion 41 years ago. So, you know, as we see legislation being introduced across the nation and people arguing about late-term abortion and, and infanticide, um, what they're actually doing is talking about people just like me. Yeah. And you... Um... You found out, um, how many years ago did you find out? You found out when you were 14 about um, what really happened with your birth story. So can you take us back to that? Can you take us back to your birth story um, and kind of where your story began? Yeah, Uh, I am one of the few abortion survivors who has any medical record of um, what happened to me. You know, most of the time, these kind of circumstances aren't detailed and for good reason, right? Um, They don't want to to highlight uh, what happens. But in my case, my birth mother was 19 years old. She was a college student. She wasn't married yet to my biological father. And she did not realize for a very long time that she was pregnant. Um, You know, that was surprising to me. Some of these details I haven't learned until, you know, just in recent years. But, you know, I think it's really interesting when we read through some of the statistics even now about why late-term abortions take place. One of the biggest reasons is because women don't realize that they're pregnant for a really long time. So it's fascinating to me that really, you know, what my my birth mother's story was is still the story of so many women still today. So she didn't. Which is, cra- which is crazy. I mean, you you're the mom of two daughters, as am I. And it's like it's crazy to think that women could not realize that long that they're not pregnant, but I think it's probably, it happens obviously more than we think. And I mean, I'm sure denial or just when we, when we were getting pregnant, you know, we're excited and happy and that's the plan, but it's like, that's not the story for all women. Absolutely, Yeah. And I think that's, isn't that an interesting storyline, Andrea, you know, part of that I think is what we need to address is 
you know, what is it like for so many women to not find joy in that moment, right? To be so scared, um, to have no support. I mean, I think that statistic is really telling. Yeah, that's such a good point because, and that's what we'll get into later. Like just as it's not enough just to talk about like pro-life, we're all pro-life, you know, Christians, we are, but there's so much more to that story. There's the mom and that needs to be addressed of why, why she's not joyful about her pregnancy or wants to hide it or can't tell people. So, um, that's a good point. And that was a similar story with your birth mother that she kept that to herself and then finally told your maternal grandmother or she found mm-hmm. out. And then, um, literally like the next day, like you share in your book, she was taken to have an abortion, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. So my birth mother didn't realize for (laughs) uh, probably almost eight months that she was pregnant. I mean, almost that far along, they didn't realize it. But yeah, when my grandmother realized and my grandmother could realize it because she was an OB nurse, um, you know, think about that to put yourself in my birth mother's shoes, um, not realize she's pregnant, you know, have somebody figure it out, point it out to her, learn she's pregnant, be a little bit confused about that, right? Not sure what to think, what's going to happen, and then be absolutely berated by her own mother and told, you know, you've disappointed us. This isn't what we wanted to see happen. We're going to take care of this. There is no other option for you. And then to literally have the abortion forced upon her within days. And is that something, I mean, Does that still have, like, I know that that happens a lot, that women are, quote, forced to have abortions. I mean, are they still today, can they, in the United States, without their consent, can teenagers have to have an abortion? Yeah, there are more circumstances than not, I would say. You know, the Elliott Institute actually reports that 64% of women identify feeling pressured into their abortion decision. And and I can't think of the exact figure off the top of my head of those that have self-reported coercion and force, but it's it's pretty astronomical. And, you know, I think that's another one of those pieces, right, that people really are not aware of. People want to think, you know, oh, it's always a woman's choice. We must have these protections in place for women to make sure things like this don't happen. Now, folks, I'm sorry to tell you, <laughs> most states do not have anything that prevents a woman from being coerced and forced. Right. Which is that's so much of your story is just bringing to light all of these things um, that I think the public is so naive and unaware of. Um, It's very simplified at times in the media that it just looks like, oh, it's a woman's right. But there's so many more elements and layers to it. So like with your own birth mother, her mother forced her to have that abortion um, late term and because she didn't know how far along she was. So describe kind of what you went through in the womb that your medical records show the kind of abortion that you survived. I'm actually the survivor of a saline infusion abortion. And that was the most common procedure back in the 1970s. Um, It isn't performed routinely anymore, uh, mainly because too many of us actually survived the procedure. Um, People will recognize that term because if you look online, you can see pictures of babies like me um, with the blackened skin. Um, A lot of them, if they survived initially, were just laid aside to die. But that procedure, the reason why the skin is blackened on those babies is because this saline infusion abortion involved injecting a toxic salt solution into the amniotic fluid surrounding the baby in the womb. They would like remove some amniotic fluid and then put this saline solution in. And the intent of that toxic salt solution was to poison and scald the child to death. So usually the child would soak in that toxic salt solution for about 24 hours 
um, before their life was successfully ended by it. And then premature labor was induced with the intent of that deceased child being expelled from the womb. So overall, the procedure usually lasted about 72 hours. My medical records actually indicate that I soaked in that toxic salt solution for five days uh, because they just kept trying time and time again to induce my birth mother's labor and just couldn't get it um, to be started until that fifth day. And, you know, over that five-day period, it was a horrific set of circumstances, not only for me, you know, fighting for my life in the womb, but also for my biological mother. I now know that members of her family who knew about the abortion taking place, you know, really thought that she was probably dying in the middle of that procedure because, you know, it was taking longer than what it should have. Things were not going the way that they expected it to. Um, and, you know, she was in a horrible spot, understandably, physically, emotionally, mentally and spiritually. So, you know, we were subjected to that together over five days. And on the fifth day of that abortion procedure, I was delivered at St. Luke's Hospital uh, because most late term abortions take place at hospitals, you know, not because they plan to save the baby um, or they expect us to be born alive, but because of the greater risk to a woman's health. Um, the and so and so, yeah, I mean, you share in your book, um, You Carried Me, which gets into so many more intimate details of this, but like she even tried, she tried to escape. I mean, it was, she did clearly did not want to do this, but then what she was put through, I mean, can you even imagine, I mean, she was such a victim through this process as so many women. I mean, it's not just these babies that are the victims. It's the moms yeah. too, um, of what she went through. So finally, after five days, um, you were delivered and she was told that you were dead. Yeah. yeah. She, um, you know, she, like I said, she was in a tough spot emotionally and physically and mentally. And, you know, did not know that I was actually born alive. She was told, you know, don't look at it when I was delivered. Don't look at it. It's hideous. It's a monster. And of course she didn't want to look right. She was afraid of what right. she was going to see. And so she never knew if it was a little boy or a little girl who was delivered in that final step of the abortion procedure. But yeah, she was told um, that the abortion was successful uh, when in fact I was actually born alive. Yeah. And you will talk about this later, but you didn't realize this part of your story till much later that she was forced into this, um, which is just God's fingerprints on your story, how you kind of came to know that. But at the time when you found out, you did not know that she didn't know and she was forced into this. Um, and you can imagine just, I think about with you telling this, just the trauma that she had gone through too. And some of these women and like, if she had to just go on with her life, like nothing happened. I mean, there's, uh, it's just heart wrenching all of it. Um, so you were born alive and share a little bit because there was some debate argument about keeping you alive, alive yeah, absolutely. or not, correct? Yeah. And I know that's a tough one when we see it in the news and we hear people talking about infanticide and, you know, no matter whatever side of the abortion debate people are on, um, I think people find the word infanticide to be inflammatory, but I find it to be actually pretty spot on um, because that was right. the circumstances sur surrounding, you know, my survival. My parents were told years ago um, that they laid me aside. Um, we laid her aside mm -hmm. after she was born alive, you know, and it's funny because we hear those words now repeated still today, right? Lay them aside, make them comfortable. Mm -hmm. And, um, I was contacted by a nurse about two years ago now who had actually read my book and she was able to share more of the story with me. 
she was a young nurse, like 20, 21 years old, uh, working in the neonatal intensive care unit at that hospital when I was born alive in that abortion. And she said, you know, I'll never forget it that day. She said the door to the NICU came flying open, which was, you know, normal given the circumstances, mm -hmm. babies born under distress, they'd be rushed in. But she said what came out of the nurse's mouth that day was anything but normal. This tall blonde nurse had picked me up from the room where I was delivered and rushed me off to the NICU that day. And she shouted out, that darn Dr. Kelberg messed up. And he, he was my abortionist. Wow. And she went on and she yeah. said she just kept gasping for breath. She just kept gasping mm -hmm. for breath. And so I couldn't just leave her there to die. And how undeniable is that? Like, just that life in the womb. I mean, that is life. You are a baby in the womb fighting to live. Um, and by the grace of God, you did. And did you have any, like, at that time, like, horrendous, like, I don't know, you said earlier that, like, the babies with that saline infusion had the red skin and burnt lungs and all of that. Did you have any of those things from five days in I that had solution? some health issues. So, um Part of it is probably because, you know, I my birth mother had no prenatal care. I was born at probably about 31 weeks gestation. The abortionist had written on my medical records. He estimated my birth mother to be somewhere between 18 and 20 weeks pregnant with me. But, okay, you know, I weighed almost three pounds. I was two pounds, 14 ounces. And so a neonatologist remarked after I was delivered alive that I was probably more like 31 weeks, which I would say is spot on when we know... Um, you know, the, the growth rate and everything of babies in the womb. So um, like many premature infants, I suffered from severe respiratory liver problems. I suffered from seizures. Uh, the doctors actually thought I had a fatal heart defect initially, uh, but it was solely because my body was under so much distress. So yeah, my body was um, in pretty tough shape initially. And, you know, even still today, I would say doctors don't know a whole lot about how uh, an abortion procedure, especially like a surgical abortion or even a chemical abortion today, is going to affect someone's health longitudinally. So in, back then they had said, you know, she may not live for very long. If she does, she's going to suffer from multiple disabilities. Uh, there were mistakes made in my care. So they actually thought I was going to be blind from even that. Um, so, yeah, it was definitely a rough start to life. So going back to the, you know, there was an argument about keeping you alive or not. At that time, were there any laws um, like protecting the rights of children born from failed abortions or no? I mean, was that clearly just that nurse just taking a stand to fight for your, help you fight for yeah, your life? Yeah, mainly now? that nurse was taking a stand. I've done a little bit of um, investigation to see that there was a law in Iowa uh, back at the time, I think, it, and it was around somewhere around 1977. I don't know if it was 76 or 78. But there was a law passed um, regarding infanticide. You know, clearly they were not talking about specifically children like me. But in the grand scheme of things, um, that kind of law could have had a bearing on whether somebody was willing to fight for me. But, you know, I think we need to be honest with ourselves and say, we know that children like me are still left to die today. Or they're killed. I don't think most people know, like, I hate to admit as much as I thought I kind of knew about the abortion issue. I did not know how often this does happen. I mean, once is too many, but the reality is it does happen. And like you've shared, um, on your Facebook and page, it's like 19 States 
I believe, correct, don't have protection for these children that are born right. from veiled That's abortions. Right. Is and, that right? You know, the reality is the more we introduce, and I don't say, you know, I'm trying to be kind and say we, let's be honest, I got to be honest and say the more the Democrats, you know, I wish this wasn't a partisan issue, but right now it is. The more the Democrats introduce mm -hmm. legislation through the third trimester, the more the likelihood is going to be that children like me survive abortion. So it's kind of like, you know, they're introducing something that's going to result in more children like me. But at the same time, they're trying to take away any kind of medical care for us. You know, that's that's really, really alarming. Uh, statistically, I can tell you, too, a little bit about how often this happens. We don't track all abortion numbers completed, first of all, in the United States. Can uh, California is one of the states that doesn't report their numbers of abortions completed. And theirs is a huge number. That is so crazy to me. Like that that's not just like a requirement. I whatever. That's a whole probably a whole other <laughs> We could be at this all day, couldn't we? I know, right? Yeah. So in the United States, we're right under a million abortions performed a year. I think we're somewhere in like nine hundred and sixty thousand. That's and that's the lowest it's been for quite some time. So we were about one point two million for a very long time. So right now we're just under a million abortions performed a year. In Canada, they perform about 100,000 abortions a year. Canada is one of the few countries that actually puts out statistics from their government about children that survive abortions. And so they reported out from 2013 to 2018, during a five-year period, 766 children, 766, excluding Quebec, survived failed abortions. That is incredible. Wow. And what is, is that, what's their, um, yes. do they allow late-term abortions When you Canada? look at the okay. nations that allow really unrestricted access to abortion uh, at the national level, and there are some little nuances in a couple of countries, but by and large, those countries that allow unrestricted abortion access are your major major countries that we think are so civilized, right? Correct. I mean, and how barbaric, though, that these civilized countries allow this. Um, and that is such, again, I'm still thinking what you just said, that allowing these um, third trimester abortions is going to create more incidences of these babies being born alive. Now, in these states that don't have protection for these babies, this is hard, but what happens to them? And it can look different from clinic to clinic or hospital to hospital. But, you know, I can I can share a few stories with you in Florida. And I can't remember the exact year. It was around 2007. People can actually find this case pretty easily if you Google it. But there was a an 18 year old woman who had an abortion at a clinic in Florida. Baby was born alive. Mother was screaming and contacted 911 trying to get this child medical care and um sorry it doesn't um it's crazy right i do this every day i talk about this and um and sometimes i still cry about it because it's so inhumane but um this baby survived this abortion and the mom called 911 trying to get her child help and um they took the baby and placed it in a red um, like medical waste bag and left the baby to suffocate mm. in the bag and threw the baby on the roof oh. in order to get rid of the evidence. And so the police like had to come back a couple of different times 
before um, they actually found the baby. So at some point, somebody took the baby down from the roof and put the baby inside the clinic, which is where they found them. Um, there was some prosecution in that case. Um, but that's one of those that, you know, thank God for that brave mother who shouldn't have had to do that to fight for her child to be provided medical care and then be completely traumatized by what happened. But that's one of those few cases that we know about. You know, it's it happens more frequently that the doctors and nurses, usually it's nurses, um, who are witness to children being left um, to simply die by laying them aside or um, quote unquote, make them comfortable, mm-hmm. right? That gets under my skin like nobody else's business at this point in time. Um, Cause it's not ever right. comfortable and- for a child to have to gasp for breath and ultimately die. Right. And it sounds like we're just covering that with like, yeah, oh, see, we are being good and kind good. to them. And I just you sharing that story. I mean, as hard as it is for you to say it and for us to hear it, it's like, that is the reality that I think this country needs to be aware of. Because with us not even really knowing like what happens to these babies, it's like, it's so pushed under the rug and it's just easier to be put a pretty face on it. Like I'm for women's rights or I'm, you know, so I think we have to know and hear these stories like yours and like this woman's that you just shared as hard as it is. But I do want to talk about too, like, and we'll talk about this a little later, but I just want to mention it right now. Like it's not enough either just for random people, not random, but for people on Facebook to just be posting shaming things or just to out of nowhere post stories like that. Like there's so much more to it. Like just what else, what are you going to do now? Now that you know, what are you going to do? And it's not just posting on social media, the atrocities. So we'll talk about that a little bit later because as Christians loving and coming alongside these women, I mean, there's so much more than just posting gruesome facts and stories. Um, And that's what I love about your story because you do have a lot of, I mean, it's just filled with love and forgiveness and action steps. So let's go back a little bit to your story when you finally did find out because you spent two months in the NICU and then you were adopted um, by some loving parents in Iowa um, who brought you in, who also had another adopted daughter that's your older sister. So you lived that life. And you did you say that by the time you were one, you kind of had no health issues or you were caught up? Was that correct? Yeah. Yeah, I was pretty well caught up. You know, it's funny because I, and I think I talk about this in the book. You know, I can remember being about five years old and going to a, just a doctor's appointment. And, you know, I remember my parents crying and I couldn't understand at the time what they were crying about. And, You know, now I know it's because they were told by the doctors they thought I was, you know, going to go on to live a completely healthy life. You know, I was caught up developmentally. I had been for a long time, but, you know, to get that kind of clearance from the doctors, you know, gave my parents a lot of relief. So, yeah. Yeah, you can imagine as being a parent to just have that. And I mean, that was a miracle. That was a miracle that God just had healed you and brought you um, to full health from that. And just talking about your adopted parents, I'm thinking they are an example of being pro-life in action, really to be, um, to willing to take on a child that they knew was going to fight for life and maybe have some health issues. I mean, that is an example of what we're called to do. And I mean, I know not everybody's called to adopt, but we're called to take some action steps and they are the kind of the epitome of doing that with both, um, the adoptions that they had. So you were, raised in that loving home. And was that a Christian home? I'm assuming. Yeah. I'm, I have an interesting faith background. So some people know this about me. I'm a convert to the Catholic church in recent years. 
Um, but I was raised Methodist. My parents, okay. you know, were members of this little tiny Methodist church that was our absolute home. You know, really some of the best memories of my childhood stem from that church and our church community. So, yeah, my parents were just really faithful, quiet, like simple. And I don't mean simple in a bad way, right? Like life was just really simple for us and it was beautiful. Yeah. And so a good childhood and until, and then, but it was when you were 14 though, that you found out, um, share a little bit about that of what your birth story was. Yeah. My older sister actually became pregnant as a high school student. And, you know, I think our family is the first to admit, right? Like uh, so many families go, oh, I never like expected this. And I kind of like now look at people and go, yeah, I think we should all expect this, right? Um, there is no immunity in this world. Uh, yeah. um, but, you know, my sister, of course, was raised with the same beliefs that I was about the sanctity of life and the gift of adoption. But, you know, she had a lot of fears and anxieties, as so many women do. And so she was actually considering every option at the time, which included abortion. She was pretty honest about that when our parents finally, you know, confronted her about that pregnancy. And when they heard that she was not sure about what decision to make, they decided to tell her the story of my survival, hoping that she would understand that this was a really big decision she was facing in her life. And so they told her the story of my survival. And, you know, I have no doubt my parents thought they were going to then turn around and share that with me. But my sister actually got to me um, before they could. So during an argument, it must have been like immediately after that, during an argument with me one night, she shouted, you know, at least my biological parents wanted me. And we were great at fighting with each mm -hmm. other. You know, I will readily admit that. Um and when I went to say something back to her that night, because I was thinking, right, how absurd is that statement? We are equally loved, equally wanted. Uh, but when I turned around to say something to her that night, the look on her face, I will just never forget it. And that's when she realized that she had shared something that I didn't know yet. And so she really kind of softened right in the middle of that argument. And she said, you know what, wait up for mom and dad tonight, ask them to tell you the truth and you will see. And so I waited up that night. I, I honestly cannot remember where our dad was, but I think this is the way it was supposed to be. My mother and I sitting down on the couch and I told her about the words that my sister had spoke. And, you know, she really, I knew how uncomfortable she was, uh, but I never expected her to say, you know, Missy, your biological mother had an abortion during her pregnancy with you and you survived it. Yeah. I mean, nobody expects that. That's, I mean, I'm sure you're young, a teenage mind. I mean, an adult mind couldn't wrap their mind around that. So as a teenager to hear that, I'm just sure that, um, it was just more than your mind could probably handle. And you share in your book that you did feel a lot of guilt and shame with that news. Explain that a little bit and why Yeah, part of that is the work of the enemy. Why you I, mean, felt I, that still, way. I mean, we all battle that, right? Whether it's something that someone else did to us or a choice that we made. I mean, the enemy loves to induce that shame and um, want us to be silenced by that. So part of it, I've, I've battled that my entire life. The enemy would love nothing more than for me to just shut up and, and feel ashamed of who I am. Um, but the other part of that, too, is 
you know, that we live in a world and we're seeing it raging right now, right? We live in a world that says what happened to me was just someone else's choice to make. It was my birth mother's right to have that abortion. Um, back then I didn't know, right, that it was forced upon her. But honestly, I don't know that that even would have changed that feeling for me because it's this very visceral, innate um feeling that you get that says there must have been something so wrong with me, right? I was so unwanted. I was so unworthy. I was such a burden. And and our world says that. And so that's where the shame came from. The guilt really came from the fact that I survived. You know, I spent years of my life asking God, why me? Right? Why me when tens of millions of children right. have not been as fortunate as me? Do you no, still wrestle no, with that? Like, not why anymore. You, and, or are you seeing? You know, the, yeah. For me, the answer, you know, people are so gracious and kind, right? People will go, you were made for this. Yes. You know, in some respects, I know God has, has created this purpose for me in the midst of my suffering. But, you know, I don't believe I was any different than those tens of millions of children in the grand scheme of things. I really feel like what was different for me is that people said yes. You know, that's your pro-life in action, right? People said, yes, we're going to fight for this little girl. We're not going to leave her to die. Yes, we're going to pray over her in the in the NICU. Yes, we're never going to forget her. Yes, we're going to adopt her. Yes, we're going to believe in her. I think that's probably what set me apart. Right. And so, I mean, I know, I think it was on your blog or your, maybe your book, but it talks about how your journey really is one from shame and anger to faith and forgiveness. So share some, how you got to that point. I mean, as a 14 year old getting this and then really dealing with shame and anger, how did God tell me a little bit about the journey to the faith and forgiveness in this? Because I'm sure you were angry and all of those things. So talk a little bit about that journey. It definitely has been a journey. Uh, I think people can understand that I was angry at the time, right? That I was angry and I was scared. I was scared about who I was. I was scared about what my life was going to look like. Um, And I think it's this process. I mean, we all walk through it when you go through something traumatic or you learn something traumatic about your life there, you're going to experience every range of emotion and we have to be okay with feeling that and dealing with it appropriately. You know, I did not deal with my, my feelings appropriately. I can kind of laugh at myself now. It was not a laughing matter back then, but you know, I was kind of the typical um, look good on the outside kind of person. So nobody can see what's on the inside. Um, That's been a, probably one of those things that I've had to work Mm -hmm. through the most in my life. You know, I've never wanted people to pity me. I've never wanted people um, to see my pain. Historically, I didn't want people to see my pain. Now I'm okay with it because I'm whole. I'm not broken anymore. But back then I was broken and I didn't want people to know how broken I was. And part of that, I think, too, was because, you know, I was a people pleaser. I didn't want to make people uncomfortable. I didn't want my parents to worry about me. They had enough to worry about. And so, yeah, I was you know, the overachiever did well in everything, kind of my parents used to say, right, she was the perfect kid. And what they didn't know is that I was struggling with an eating disorder, trying to control something in my life when I couldn't control the very way I came into this world. They didn't know that I struggled with alcohol abuse, that I was making horrible um, dating relationships in an attempt to to distance myself from the truth about my life and the pain that I was experiencing and, you know, just trying to be like 
what I thought everybody else was, you know, so I didn't have to be this girl who was so different. That's so interesting as you're sharing this, because I'm like, this is such a theme through so many women's stories that I've heard, not, and not the same story of being an abortion survivor, but just other things in their life. Um, and then masking that and trying to look perfect. And then they cope with these things. I mean, I've also dealt with an eating disorder for masking some of my hurt. And it's like, it just shows though, how we just seek something to fill us and God is the only one and getting real with him. Um, but it's a, it's a process because God still uses all these hurts from our past to get us to where we are today. So it's very interesting, just that common theme of women that they share um, with dealing with traumatic big things in their life. Um, so you did go on though, through part of that healing was you just felt like I want to try to find mm -hmm. my family, birth mom, birth dad, all of those things. So tell us about that and how you just started um, meeting some of your biological family and then finally your own biological mother years later. Yeah. And I think part of that healing process for me, it was forgiveness. So, you know, back then I didn't know all the details about my life, but God really placed it on my heart that, that I needed to let my birth parents know that they were forgiven. And I think, you know, walking through those bad choices when I was hurting allowed me to see that really I'm not that different from them or anybody else. You know, here I was at the age of 14, realizing, gosh, you know what, I am as much a sinner as anybody else. Um, I'm forgiven. You know, so are they. I mean, that's the very simplistic 14 year, 14 year old way of looking at it. But, you know, that is what allowed me to first forgive them. And I forgive them every single day in my life. Um, but that's what allowed me to start looking for them when I was about 19. And um, it took me about 10 years to find them it took me about 10 years to obtain my medical records, you know, during that time, I went on and led what I think most people would say was a pretty normal, um, good life, obtained a master's degree, married my husband, um, you know, tried to live this normal life. But that whole while was really searching for answers. And so finally, in 2007, I obtained my medical records, which, you know, as you shared, do detail the abortion. Um, it says things like a saline infusion for an abortion was done, but was unsuccessful. And um, through those medical records, I actually found out who my birth parents were because they forgot to black out their names in one little tiny corner, which, you know, I know is divine intervention after 10 years. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. it's another God another, thing. Another God thing and, in your um, story. So for I started sure. searching yeah. that very same night who, when I learned who they were. And I learned that I was living in the same city as my biological father. And, you know, I prayed about it for months. I knew what God was calling me to do. And I ultimately sent him a letter in 2007 uh, to his office and not his home, just trying to protect him a little and, you know, let him know I was alive and well, not angry, not bitter. I'd be waiting if he ever wanted to communicate. And sadly, I never heard back from him. He passed away about six months after I sent that letter to him. He died in early 2008. Um, but about that same time in 2007, mm. I went looking for my biological mother, actually reached out to her parents, not knowing that my grandmother played the role in the abortion taking place that she did, but um, was just asking for them to reach out to her on my behalf, corresponded a little bit with my grandfather. He was gracious enough to reply. And, you know, he just let me know that was a door that was not going to be opened for me. They did not communicate. They did not have a relationship. And so, you know, I continued to have to put my trust in 
God having a plan. And I think that's a hard one for most of us, right? Like it's easy to believe in God's will when things go the way we want them to. (laughs) And it's a whole other thing to trust in his will when things go otherwise. And, you know, this was not what I planned on any of this looking like. And so I had to to really just say, okay, Lord, you have a plan and it may not be what I wanted, but I'm going to trust you in that. And so you know, 2007 unfolds. I have some contact with her family. 2008, my birth father passes away. In 2008, I also gave birth to our first daughter, Olivia. She just happened to be born at the same hospital where my life was supposed to end. Which just still, you saying that gives me chills again. Like that is the irony of that. Was that healing for you hard? All of the above, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Hard initially, you know, swore I wasn't going to do that and, and then became such a healing thing. But yeah, I will never forget all of that emotion that I had to, to go through, right? It's emotional enough giving birth, but then to have all of the memories and, and work through that I had to do there. But you know what? I'm, I'm grateful. Yeah, it's a it's it's a chapter that it's I'm sure God's hand was in just again for your healing through all of this. So you deliver her, and you still had not found your birth mother, um, but you had gradually had contact with some of like cousins and grandparents, and even a nurse found you. Uh, no, she's not the one who actually rushed me off. But yeah, so this has been you know it's funny because God over time brings people out, right? My story is not just my own. It's other people's story too, which I love that because I think he's showing us once again, right? That, that we are all a part of this together and, and one person's story affects other people's lives and, Mm -hmm. and choices impact everyone. So yeah, after Olivia was born, some of my birth father's family actually came into my life, my grandfather, my great aunt. And then over time, one nurse volunteer who held me just one time contacted me um, because she had seen the movie October Baby and it got her to thinking about this baby that she held once. And so the more when we started to communicate, I mean, she knew immediately that was me. And so she came forward and had some contact with me. And then about six years ago now, one of my birth mother's cousins contacted me And then two years ago, now this other nurse came forward. So it continues to unfold. But for me, when my my cousin, my birth mother's cousin contacted me six years ago, that's how the biggest bombshells really came forward about my life. So that's how I learned that the abortion was forced. My grandmother was responsible for a lot of things. And that's how I also learned that my birth mother did not know initially that I had survived. And you share in the book, I was just looking at this right now, like on your 36th birthday, you got an email that said, Dear Melissa, 36 years ago, I was robbed of you, how I wish things could have been different. And that was from your birth mother. I mean, what did you think and feel in that moment so much? I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, that still makes me teary um, today and not, not, not for me. I mean, really the tears are not for me and my tears are for her because Um, That word robbed is so powerful, isn't it? She was robbed of me once through that forced abortion. And then she was robbed of me again when I was placed for adoption without her consent. And, um, you know, as a mother, I I don't think there's probably any worse pain than that. Mm -hmm. It's heavy. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, it's heavy. And like 
you said at that moment, her story, you realized that my story was her story too. And you weren't the only victim. Um, and that just changed, I'm sure everything, not everything, but it changed a lot for you just mm-hmm. having now seeing another victim through that process. Um, and you kind of, sh- you share too, how your story changed even. I mean, you were sharing the story that you knew, but now you had a new story, a new twist. Yeah. And I think that was, that was difficult. I mean, not, and not in terms of like my internal, you know, comfort level, but I think for me, that's part of what I've tried to to talk to people about too, right? Is, you know, the story of our lives are still being written, right? God is the author of life. He's not done writing. And I think, especially when it's a story where there's been something traumatic or difficult, um, new news comes about, right? And and to live this life in the public eye. And all of a sudden I was thinking, oh my goodness, this is like significant, right? Like how do you ever begin to to start letting people know that that there are is more to the story? And how do you how do you how do you have people believe you, right? In a world that doesn't want to believe you and your story in the first place. Now these details come out that are absolutely like horrendous, right? This is like lifetime movie. (laughs) Uh, And, and so that was a process that I had to learn to, to share that narrative. Right. And I think part of that is though, of telling it like it is right. And not be afraid of it, not be ashamed of it. Um, I think the enemy really worked on me at the time because I thought, well, now I should just not ever share my story again. Right. Some of this is way too personal. This was my grandmother. Um, I can't offend my family. And I think my greatest strength came not only from God, but from my biological mother saying, Melissa, I need you to keep doing this. Yeah, which is so you share more details of that in your book, which is so impactful. It's like you were starting to feel that shame and wanting to protect your family with that information. But she was just very outspoken and encouraging to you. Um, And you're able to talk about, too, like you share the effects of abortion, how they ripple through the generations. And that's such a huge part of the abortion issue. And you were able to really get in and share that. Um, so talk a little bit about that statement, how the effects of the abortion, just they really do ripple through all generations. It's not just you. It's not just your mom. Yeah. Whether it's talked about or not, abortion changes people's relationships. It changes families unless people find healing and, you know, in our family. So it impacted us by, you know, my life was supposed to end by it. If my life would have ended, my children never would have lived. I mean, my 10 year old wrote a little article about that the other day that I posted online, which was I saw that Melissa, like, oh my word. Yes. <laughs> I'm so proud of her. Um, but it's not just our children or future generations, right? It it impacts the relationships between parents and their children. Um, my grandparents really didn't have much of a relationship with my biological mother after that abortion took place. And even within the family, I mean, communication is very, very strained. And yes, we could attribute that to to other circumstances too, but I can tell you that I see it played out time and time again. Um, Abortion dramatically impacts people's relationships. And um, that's why we see so many hurt people, right? People who today are arguing for abortion or a woman's choice. I mean, we are a a nation full of wounded people. Yeah. And I've talked to other, um, I've talked to women that have had abortions and I've yet to meet one that just says they did it and just moved on with their life. Like it never happened. Like that's not the case. Like it is 
long-term emotional, physical effects from it. Um, and it's, so it's not just a women do it and it's their right and it's over with. Um, it's so many just long-term effects from it. Um, to kind of shift gears a little bit. So how did, cause like we talked about when we started, like you have been very much in the public eye this last month, meeting with the president on um, Fox and friends, all of those things. Tell me a little bit how you got to that point where God just, you God put on your heart that you were supposed to share all this publicly. And this was supposed to be your mission because like you said, there's lots of survivors, but they're not all, um, that they're just as outspoken and this is their mission and vision. Yeah. Yeah. Historically, I'm a very quiet person. Like, I don't know that most people would believe that <laughs> unless they read my book or they really, really know me. But God gave me a spirit of boldness that honestly, I think surprises me even some days. Like I'll write something and go, whoa, I can't believe that I was like just willing to write that. But I think the truth has this way of, of, not only setting us free, but, you know, emboldening us, right? If we know the truth and we know the impact that abortion has, uh, how could we not be bold, right? Um, But be bold and still graceful at the same time, right? I see things, even this morning, you know, I went online and I probably shouldn't have, and I was reading through some comments and I thought, oh, holy smokes, folks, that was not the right thing to say, Um, People mean well, um, but we have to share truth with grace and not submit to name calling or, you know, um, calling people murderers or stupid. Right. I mean, no, just no. So (laughs) I'm so glad you brought that up because that's what I just feel the the stirring in me right now is. Yes, I'm pro-life too, but that is not how you, you just don't go about. And there's too many throwing names and the shame and women that have had abortions. That's not how you get them to know Jesus and get over their shame. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. Like there is a way to do it with grace and love. There is. Yeah. And so I started speaking publicly back in 2007, ended up giving up my career as a social worker in about 2010. So I've been doing pro-life ministry for about nine years now. And so people know me because I speak publicly a lot. I help pregnancy centers raise funds. Um, I write a lot. Um, And I also work with survivors. That's probably the most rewarding thing that I do. I've had contact now through the Abortion Survivors Network that I founded with 269 other survivors. Just four contacted us last week after Fox came out. You know, to me, that's what brings me joy, right? Even though the battle is so aggressive right now, legislatively for life, the more they do this and the more we talk about it, the more survivors ultimately come to me. So, um, that's just the way God works. Uh, we've had contact with survivors as young as infants right now, um, and all the way up to people in their 60s and 70s who actually survived illegal abortions. Wow. Um, yeah, that's just incredible. And like you said, like it's not a bad thing that it's on the forefront right now. I mean, we wish it was not because late-term abortions were becoming legal, but to be talking about this and having this issue and awareness out there um, is part of the healing process and moving us forward. One of the things um, that I just want to bring up too, because talking about your mission, um, you share in your book that you had a daughter, um, your second daughter was born with medical issues, and that was the strongest reminder of your mission um, for you at that time in your life. 
so to kind of speak on that a little bit, how God used that um, just as a reminder for your mission and what he had called you to do. Yeah, I think some people look at my story, right? And they're so astounded because they're like, oh my gosh, she's like perfectly healthy or she's beautiful, right? And I go, yeah, thank you. But what's important is that I had intrinsic value as a human being, period, end of sentence, no matter what I look like, no matter what my health was like. And to ultimately then give birth to a child who we did not know was going to have health issues. You know, she had a couple of surgeries before she was two months old. I now know that doctors um, counsel women to abort children a lot like her. Um, She will probably have heart surgery later this year. You know what? I'm not afraid of that Mm -hmm. because God goes before her um, and her heart problems are very minor in the grand scheme of things. But um you know, I know that that we live in a world that somehow wants to say that her life has less value or that she somehow would have been the textbook case to be aborted. And um, and I know you can hear that in my voice. I um, I will fight for her every single day of my life and I will fight for the children just like her. You know, we live in a, a world where yeah. people's value is so subjective, isn't it? Like any little thing that makes someone different or vulnerable yeah. or somehow potentially burdensome, um, that is, that makes them a target. Yeah. And we, <laughs> I don't want to compare it to Hitler and the camp, but there's a tinge of it there, right? Of like, we need to get rid of those that aren't just and the world standards perfect. Um, and it is heart wrenching. And so when they speak into, um, you would, you can speak into this a little bit more, but when it said like, you know, these late term abortions are only if the woman's health is in danger or the child might not be able to live outside the womb. I mean, what does that, right. What kind of objective criteria are they using? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Doctors are wrong more often than what they would want to admit. And I actually, you know, even in the course of our daughter's care, there was a point where I was fighting with the doctors about something and it was a big medical issue. Right. But at one point, and I, I fought for them against them and I fought for her. And at one point the doctor came in one day and said, I'm going to say something that I don't say very often. And she said, you proved me wrong. But how many families don't don't have the support to fight? How many parents don't have the experience in these kind of issues to fight, right? Unfortunately, our medical community, as well-meaning as they can be sometimes, can often make parents feel like they're ignorant, that they don't have any right to stand up to them or to question them. And so I think, you know, that that particular set of of population, those who could have disabilities or just simply complex health issues, right, um, are a huge part of the conversation we need to have. Yeah. And I think, so is that part of, um, I know we need to wrap up here shortly. I could talk to you all day about about this and listen to you. And I, um, but is that part of kind of what you're speaking about? Like right now, like I know, like last week, going to the Oval Office, meeting with the president. I mean, are those all the issues that you're speaking into right now? Yeah. I mean, our our Ava story, Ava's our four-year-old with the health issues. You know, I talk about it from time to time. There are other families who can use their story like that to highlight it. So, you know, when I talk to the president, I use mainly my story, right, as a survivor of a late-term abortion. But yeah, if I have the opportunity to sit down with someone, absolutely, I'm going to pull out every last 
<laughs> every last experience. And I think, I mean, God was really purposeful in the midst of that, yeah. right? Like God didn't yeah. cause my Avis health issues, but he's bringing about good in the midst of it, right? To say, Melissa, here's yet another experience I'm going to give you to help educate people. And when people come at me, right, and say, oh, you just don't understand. What about in the case of this or in the case of that? And I can go, let me tell you about what I've been through. And people don't expect that. No, I mean, God has certainly given you um, <laughs> a lot of chapters just to make your mission bolder, I think, really. I mean, and that you can speak to so many in it, whether it's the mothers or the survivors or um, the opponents of it. So tell me, um, I, I do want to end with talking about this. So we brought it up a little bit. Um, what's kind of stirring my heart lately is it's not enough just to be pro-life, to just go throw these posts up there or call names. I mean, what are some really tangible and th tangible things that we can do besides just posting? Because actions speak a lot louder than our words that we throw out there. Right. Get off Facebook, which is hard for me, right? Because I have a love-hate relationship with that. I have to do it um, for ministry work and educating people. But yeah, I would much rather be, you know, boots on the ground. Yeah. Let's get out and do something. So yeah, everybody has a part to play. And, you know, yes, posting things on Facebook or on social media is can be helpful. But, you know, the statistics tell us that it's the sitting down, having a conversation with people and multiple times um, is what leads to people's conversion. So first of all, if you're looking for a conversion, you got to put some time into it and establish a relationship. But secondly, you know what, get out and use the gifts that, that God has given you. So, you know, maybe you can volunteer at a pregnancy center or a local pro-life organization, you know, they can always use help. We don't have funds by and large in pro-life organizations or even in pregnancy centers, right. To do the tasks that need to be done. It doesn't have to be, you know, a counselor. There are so many different things you can do. Um, you know, be part of a 40 days for life campaign um, pray at home, um, write letters to your legislator. They do listen. They do. Um, and if it's not them directly, it's somebody who works for them who will pass along the messages. Um, you know, put in an Embrace Grace group at your church that comes alongside women uh, who are in need. I mean, there are just so many things people could do to make a difference. And, and that's what it's about, right? No matter what happens legislatively with abortion, we are all going to be continuously called to serve people in need. Right. And that's such a good point. That's what's been on my heart lately too. Like whatever the law ends up saying, I mean, that still doesn't mean like we're done with our work as Christians and pro-life um, advocates. I mean, there's always, like you said, the pregnancy resource centers. I mean, that's some of the most crucial things to get involved with or coming alongside these young moms. I mean, there's so many layers and love. Speaking love and acceptance is so much more than throwing so much more effective than just throwing out shame and names and all of that. Um, and especially speak to, um, you just did a little bit, but just churches. I mean, I think we're really called as the body of Christ to come alongside um, these women and, you know, the dads too. I mean, all of this, but speak into that and families speak into that just a little bit as churches, what we are called to do. Yeah. I think a lot of times people will say, I've never heard my pastor talk about abortion and, you know, I understand there are some different factors at play in different churches, but I always like to remind pastors that, you know, if you avoid talking about it, it doesn't prevent it from happening, right? Like, 
it's still happening. And unfortunately, it's happening and you're not doing anything yeah. to to help your congregation. So even if it makes you uncomfortable or you're afraid of offending someone, the reality is if it's not going to be you, who else is going to be speaking that truth? So again, it's it's about speaking truth, but also speaking grace to let people know that they're loved and forgiven that there are healing ministries that exist throughout our communities, whether it's through a pregnancy center or, um, you know, a retreat like Rachel's Vineyard. Um, there are so many opportunities for people to find healing. And I truly believe that as the body of Christ, we're all called to, to rise up and to bring about healing and support one another and to help people in need. Yeah, I would totally agree. And you list a lot of this, um, these resources you have on your website. Um, so can you share just where, where you can be found? And we'll list them on the show notes too, but let's tell us your website, all of those things. Yeah, my website is melissaodenohden.com. People can also find me on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter um, on there. And then also the Abortion Survivors Network is the Abortion Survivors com and people can find us on Facebook and Twitter as the abortion survivors. Okay. And then you have your book, you carried me, um, that will also list, which I just, I really encourage people to pick up and read because although you've shared an overview of your story here, your memoir is just really just goes into the heart of it, the love and the forgiveness, um, and your, your journey to become how God um, is now using you. So again, thank you so much, Melissa, for joining me today and just being so honest and open um, in your fight for the voiceless. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. I hope you are not only inspired and encouraged by Melissa's story, but you also realize that there are many layers to the abortion topic and the effects run through generations. As Christians, we are called to fight against injustices like abortion, but we're also called to love and forgive and not to shame and condemn. If you want to learn more about Melissa's story and get involved in the fight for the voiceless, you can learn more on Melissa's website, her social media page, and her book, which are all listed on the Her Story Speaks website at herstoryspeaks.com.